Something strange uh, has happened, and uh, people have been asking me questions several times this weekend about John chapter 3. <clears throat> and so instead of looking at the Psalms here at the beginning, I want to deal with uh, what Jesus teaches Nicodemus. Um, and after that's over, we'll go to Psalm 23 if we have time. You know the story about Nick, right? Odemus. He comes to Jesus at night. Uh, he's ashamed of the fact that he believes. Well, he is a Pharisee. He is one of the ruling council. And uh, he comes with a very important question. And Jesus blows his mind. Jesus has a tendency to do this for, uh, for the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. And uh, the situation here is that this fellow wants to know about Jesus. He knows that no one who didn't come from God could do the miracles that Jesus does. And he says that in verse 2 of John 3, no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. So he knows God's with Jesus at this point. As you read through the book, you see Nicodemus three times. You see him standing up for them uh, at a later time in hopes that he would change the mind of those who are leaders. And then you see him at the end of the book, toward the end, uh, taking down the body of Jesus with Joseph of Arimathea. These are two wealthy leaders. And they get permission from Pilate to take the body of Jesus down off the cross. And so you can really see Nicodemus coming to faith through this book. Now, if, he had, if Jesus had given him some little Sunday school answer, he wouldn't have got it. But what Jesus does is give him a very, well, he uses double and triple entendre all the way through here. Double meaning, triple meaning. And Nicodemus doesn't get it, at least not at first. He may think about it and then maybe later get it, but at this point he doesn't get it. Uh, Jesus said in verse 3, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. I want to show you that Greek word. I don't normally write stuff like this, but the Greek word anothen is used 18 times in the New Testament. And 16 of those times it's translated from above. Only two times is it translated again. Your Bible may even have a footnote that says from above. Anothen in Greek means from above. But it also can mean again. 
under certain circumstances. Nicodemus takes it to mean again, but Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying you must be born from above. I hear people talk about being born again. Well, there are good scriptures for that. First Peter chapter 1 talks about we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God. But in this case, uh, he, is, he is using this double-meaning word so that he will befuddle Nicodemus. I think his purpose is to get Nicodemus so his mind is reeling. He's not giving him some little simple statement. And so Nicodemus, in verse 4, and this is the rabbinic method, you make a statement, and then the student asks a question. And the student's question is, how can a man be born when he's old? Obviously, he can't enter his mother's womb a second time to be born. And Jesus said, I, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom, kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the Spirit. Now, what's this mean? Well, you look at the text. I'm going to give you what I call a continuum here. You got water up here and flesh, I mean, a spirit down here. And if you look at the next verse, you'll see that he's talking about two births. What's the next verse say? Yeah, flesh produces flesh. Spirit produces spirit. He's talking about two different births here. Water birth is the way God produces anything. God created the universe out of water by means of water. 2 Peter 3, 5. He created the universe out of water and by means of water. And then he used that same water to flood the universe, to flood the world. Uh, in the time of Noah. And so when you read through Scripture, everything God creates is through water. How did Israel become a nation? Passing through the water of the, of the sea, the Red Sea. How did they enter the land? Passing through the water of the Jordan. When a baby is born, he has to pass through the elementary canal, and that is through the water, where the water has broken first. And when a Christian... A person believes in God, he is baptized. He comes in through water. And Peter deals with that too, 1 Peter 3. Uh, he makes it clear that the, the physical aspect of the water is not what saves you, but what saves you is the answer of a, of a pure conscience uh, through the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and that happens through baptism. So baptism takes place really on two planes, physical and spiritual we got two births we're talking about here. And the good thing is that this is Jesus' analogy for the new birth. So what, what is it that has to encounter the ovum for there to be birth? Sperm. Is there any other word for it? How about, how about if you have soil and be seed? 
In the New Testament, there are two different words, sperma and spora. Spora means spores, like, you know, mushrooms produce. It's a tiny seed. What do you call it when the ovum receives the sperm? Okay, that's one word for it. That's more like soil. What's another word for it? Conception. What happens after conception? You know, if you ladies have had a baby, you know a whole bunch of things happen over a long period of time. Mainly growth. But there are like 5,000 chemical reactions going on in that baby's liver all the time. God is knitting together the body with 25,000 miles of blood vessels, with all the nerve structures, with all the cell structures, all the details. The heart is the first thing formed. And God is the former of the heart. And so differentiation, change, growth, all these things are happening. What happens after the growth has reached its peak? Birth. The baby is born. What happens after birth? You got new life. What else? You got more growth. You hope. You go from milk to solid food. What happens? What's the end result? The end and the aim. What's the aim of this growth? Maturity. What's the end? Death. Physical death. All right. That's the process. See, we understand this process pretty well. So Jesus gives us this analogy to talk about spiritual birth. What is it that has to encounter the human heart for there to be life in the spirit? Somebody said it. What is it the heart has to receive? The word. I'm going to put the word gospel here and the word word. The Word of God. If you look at the Scripture, you can go to 1 Peter, the last part of the first chapter. He says, We've been born again by an imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God, and this is the Gospel which was preached to you. 1 Peter 1, 21-23. Okay? So this is the Gospel that was preached to you. That's how you, you were born again. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, You do not have many fathers, but I begat you, I fathered you through the gospel. So the gospel and the word penetrate the heart. What do we call it when the heart receives the word? What do we call it when the heart receives the gospel? Starts with F. Faith. What, are we, what happens after faith? I'll give you a hint. Look above the line. This is Jesus' analogy. 
There's repentance, there's decision, there's desire to make Jesus Lord. There's many things that happen here. What happens after the growth reaches its peak? Well, that'd be over here on the other side, but yes. But what happens here after you recognize? What connects with birth, see? Baptism is passing through the water just like birth is passing through the water. This is Jesus' analogy, not mine. And then he says, of course, there's more growth after that. There, you go from milk to solid food. The exact image is used in Scripture. First Peter talks about us desiring the sincere milk of the Word. And Paul talks about you could take only milk. You weren't ready for solid food yet. But the book of Hebrews then, chapter 6, says it's time for you to take solid food. You need to grow up. So growing up, what's the aim of the process? Maturity. You see where I'm going? It's where Jesus went. What's the end of the process? Eternal life. Life into the ages. Two questions. Number one, where does life begin? Isn't the egg alive? Isn't the sperm alive? See, there's some sense in which the heart and the Word of God are already alive. If this is Jesus' analogy, if we're being honest here. And so certainly, by faith, life begins. Certainly, at the time of conception. Agree? But when does, that's the first question, when does life begin? Life begins somewhere here. You know, God knew us before the foundation of the world and chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Read the first chapter of Ephesians. Read Romans 8, 28 and 29. Those God foreknew, He also predestined. To be conformed to the image of his son. So he could be the firstborn among many brothers. Knows he predestined, he called. Knows he called, he justified. Knows he justified, he glorified. See, God sees us over here. He sees us already glorified. Because he's Alpha and Omega. He doesn't have to move through the process the way we boring people have to. But God penetrates all reality. He is transcendent and imminent. The Apostle Paul says there is one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. He penetrates the universe. He's beyond the farthest star. He's at the core of the atom. He's in our hearts reading everything. Incredible. Then, second question. Now we know where life begins, right? Where does fellowship with the family begin? See, there's a sense in which it begins over in here somewhere. When my kids were in the womb, one at a time, thank God, 
When my kids were in the womb, they were still my kids. When a person believes, he's still God's kid. He may not have come to the place yet where he understands that he needs to be born. He needs to go through the birth process. So life is over here. Growth takes place. Ladies, you know if you've had children that there is something going on between you and that child all the time. First it starts with a little flutter. And pretty soon it's like, you know, like alien. You know, things moving inside your stomach. And then pretty soon it wants out. And if you do it in the normal order, you will be baptized after you come to faith. Now, there are churches that have it upside down. There are churches that have people baptized over here, and then later they come to faith. And that breaks the analogy, so I can't answer about that. I believe that God looks at their hearts. Excuse me? Yeah, it is. Baptism is really a public birthing ceremony. And then, as you see, you grow after that, and then the aim of the of this growth is maturity, just like it is up here. This is Jesus' analogy. So where does fellowship in the family begin? Probably somewhere around here. But real fellowship is here. My kids are now 30, gosh, how old are they? 35 and 37. And we can talk. He and I discuss biblical stuff all the time. He's always studying Greek and reading the Bible. My daughter's married to a preacher. We just did a revival over in Texarkana. Um, they're always talking about the Scripture and the Word, and they love God and love the church, and they've got, we've got seven grandkids, and I pray every day that God will provide mates for them and that are Christian so they never have to go through the pain of divorce. But we can share here on a level we could never share back in there. I can remember when they began to see things, when they began to understand. I can also remember seeing sin come into their lives. And see, sin comes back after you're born again. And you have to deal with it. You have to face up to it. You have to overcome it. What God told Cain is what we need to know. God told Cain, before he murdered Abel, he said, sin is crouching at this opening. And it desires to control you, but you must master it. You must overcome sin. If you're a Christian, you have grace and you have the Holy Spirit and you can overcome sin. When you get tempted, stop thinking about the temptation and start thinking about Scripture. Find a Scripture that deals with your worst temptation. I have. Mine was getting drunk. And I memorized Ephesians 5.18 and following. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit, and goes on and on from there. You know, there are other quotations that I have that I don't want to share because they're problems I don't want to bring up here. But there are things that each person has to deal with overcoming sin. You know, I keep thinking as I get older, my juices will dry up, and I won't be tempted in certain ways, but it just doesn't happen. Hadn't happened yet. You know. Maybe it will someday. 
I think maybe that's why God lets us grow old so we can overcome some of our problems. Dog us all our lives. Well, anyway, any question on this? Any problem you see here? I struggled with this for many years and finally settled on this. And now I deal with the water and spirit connection. The spirit, you go to Genesis 1 verse 2 says the spirit is brooding over the waters. Water was there before the word of God even spoke in Genesis 1. Water is that essential thing. Water can't be explained by scientists. Here's a direct quote from a scientific encyclopedia. Scientists cannot explain why water is a liquid. It's the only compound in the universe that doesn't act according to its molecular weight. Everything else in the universe obeys the rules. Water does not. Water is supposed to be gas, two gases, until it gets to 142 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. And then it becomes water for six degrees, according to its molecular weight. And then it freezes at 148 below. But water doesn't do that. Water shrinks down to 39.2 degrees Fahrenheit. And then it enlarges, going both directions. Completely breaks the mold. See, it's like the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit doesn't follow the rules either. He does whatever he wants. And water's like that. Water will take the shape of whatever you pour it into. The Spirit will take the shape of you if you'll open up to Him. Let Him come in. Water's incredible. Water and Spirit's connected all the way from Genesis 2, 1 verse 2, to Revelation 22, where the water is pouring out of the throne, coming down the street of the city, the holy city Jerusalem, the heavenly city, not the earthly. The earthly city is a city of slaves. Paul says that. The heavenly city is where our home is. And it'll come down out of heaven to us. So think of the scriptures that deal with this. Go to Acts 2.38. Be baptized, that's water, and you will receive the Spirit. Acts 10.43. Peter says, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. When that happens, the Holy Spirit falls on those people. And then Peter says, who can withhold water from those who received the Spirit just as we did? So water, Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.11 You've been washed. You've been justified. You've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit of our God. Hebrews 10, check me out on this one, Hebrews 10, I'm going to take a guess, I know the scripture, I know what it says, maybe you can find it there, uh, should have looked it up this morning, didn't think about it, Hebrews 10 says, uh, uh, we draw near to God, our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Is it 22? Missed it by one. Hebrews 10, 22. You know, our hearts are sprinkled, but our bodies are washed, he says. 
And then 1 Peter 3.21. And there are others. I'm just giving you a few of them. Uh, 1 Peter 3.21 says, Baptism now saves you. That's quite a statement, isn't it? The baptism you had back then saves you now. And he says, not by a washing of the filth of the body, but by the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism saves you through the inner work of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3.5, he saved us not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. See, the Spirit and the water are always together. So you can trace this through Scripture. Uh, now, let me see if you have questions. We've got a few minutes. If you don't have questions, you see anything here that bothers you? I had guys try to rewrite this because uh, one guy had uh, been listening to a Baptist preacher for a long time and he wanted. He wanted baptism to be over there someplace. Uh, but it depends on, you know, it depends on what the scripture says, not what some preacher says. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and says, You will not see the kingdom. Right. That word perceive. Excuse me? Perceive. Yeah, you won't perceive. You won't understand the kingdom of God. Yeah. You won't grasp it. The kingdom of God is a misnomer too. It should be translated the reign of God. You won't see God's rule in your life. Yeah, because he didn't understand. Yeah. Yeah, obviously I can't go back in my mom's womb. So, you know, what are you talking about? You just said you got to be born from above. That's right. Never did like religion. Religion means to be bound. That's a, a Latin word to bind back again. Uh, but but true religion is not binding. It's freeing. Question. Yes. Is religion any activity that we do to please the one of the greater than us? Yeah, uh, James says pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, that you visit widows and orphans in their distress and remain unspotted from the world. Yeah. So it's what we do, but it's also what we are. Real religion. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Whatever we do to please God is religious activity. We don't do those things to be saved. We do those things because we are saved. All right. This is supposed to be about Psalms. Let me see what question you have. Yeah, milk and solid food. Milk is the basics. 
uh, if you go to first, uh, the, the sixth chapter of Hebrews, he says, let's not lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God. You know, these are the basics. Resurrection of the dead. These are the things we believed when we first became Christian. But solid food is digging into the text to find out what it really means. You know, like this. This is solid. This is not milk. You know, it may begin with milk, but it, it turns into solid food. And the more, you, the more you dig into the Word for yourself, and the more you... You know, I used... A, I'll put this down up here. Uh, Psalm 119. And I'm trying to remember, but I think it's 99, 99 through 101. Where it says, uh, I am wiser than my enemies because I have your word. I am wiser than my teachers because I meditate on your word. I am wiser than the elders because I obey your word. So you have it, you meditate on it, you obey it. And that's, that's when you begin to see the milk. I mean, the milk changed to meat. What happens if a kid is raised on milk only? I mean, I've seen, I saw a baby one time on TV that had been raised to the age of six on milk, mother's milk only. And the baby was dwarfed and skinny and was not fully developed. You've got to have solid food. You've got to bring it in at the right time. And so Christians are the same way. We can start out with milk, and I think people, I know people who have lived as Christians for 50 years on milk. They've never grown. I believe they're saved, but just think how much they're missing, how much joy they're missing in their lives. Because they're not learning it, meditating on it, and obeying it. Yeah, that growth. Yeah. If you never are born, yeah. Yeah. What happens if a child goes full term and then keeps going in the womb? You know, after a while they they're still born. See, if you break the analogy, that's the, the trouble with breaking the analogy. But yeah. Uh, birth must take place for people to grow. Faith has to take place first, and then birth. And, you know, I have brothers and sisters that are, you know, Paul never had to deal with Presbyterians and Lutherans and Catholics and Episcopalians and so on. But we do. And my view is, if they have faith, they're my brother or sister. Wherever God has a child, I've got a brother or sister. But they need to be taught. My Episcopal priest buddy, the right Reverend Robert Ripson, uh, Bob, yeah, I read, uh, he read my article on baptism. And he came back to me and said, I want to talk to you. And he took me to a place called the Wild Turkey in Dallas, where we had two pounds of steamed shrimp. And we're dipping it in this red sauce. And he was drinking shot of whiskey every now and then. Uh, I wasn't. Um, nothing personal. I just wasn't. And uh, he said, you know, I'm not going to baptize any more babies. He said, I think you're right. I think faith comes first and then baptism. I see it in the scripture and I see it in your article. And he said, but I still don't think God cares how much water is applied. 
sprinkling, pouring, and immersion. See, all those are okay for, for him. You know, I, I said, well, I disagree with that, but I don't know how to get a hold of it or argue with it. Because God does, I don't think he's limited to our forms. Uh, Bob? Uh, probably a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> the word baptize in, in Greek means immerse. And when the King James translators voted whether to translate the word immerse or transliterate the word baptizo into baptize, they voted 188 to 187 to transliterate it. And so now we're stuck with baptize because the Church of England didn't immerse. So anyway... There are little things like that in history that change everything. But I think God will overlook a lot. I know he's going to overlook a lot in my life if he saves me. If he can save me, he can save anybody. Let me ask you to turn. Uh, if you have more questions, I'm open. Whatever you want to ask about. Yes, Mickey. I'd like for you to explain again about the water and the formation of the plant. Isn't that odd? I don't, I, I don't get it either. Well, First Peter, go to First Peter, or Second Peter. I mean, chapter three, verse five. That's way back in the back. Second Peter, chapter three. He talks about scoffers, and he talks about. I don't know if you know this, but 2 Peter 3 predicts that somebody one day will teach evolution. I don't know if you know this, but 500 B.C., the Greeks taught evolution. And 2 Peter 3 realizes that's coming back. Peter realizes, and he says in verse 3, First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. See, they're following evil desires, lust, because they don't want God to have any call on their life. That's the third stage of what you're teaching about Psalm 1. That's right. They are the mockers of Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who has not sat in the seat of the mocker, the scoffer. They will say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our father died... Everything goes on as it has from the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens and, uh, existed, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also that world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment, and the destruction of ungodly men. We didn't understand that, how the, the universe was being saved up for fire until the 1940s, when they first broke the atom. And then we realized matter has so much power in itself that the only thing that can hold this together, according to the Scripture, is the Word of God. God put the atom together and holds it there by His Word, the Scripture says. Now, whether how He created it out of water, 
The Bible doesn't tell us unless you go to Genesis 1, and then it simply says he spoke it into being. The scripture says ten times in Genesis 1, it says, Vayomer Elohim, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, ten times. And then John comes along and says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and what God was, the Word also was. That's the best translation of that verse. It means they're of the same essence, but they're not equal. Just like my word is not equal to me, there's more to me than what I say. There's more to God than what he says. He says a lot. But he sent his son as the ultimate word, the final word. And so the only way I can say that he created it is I do not explain it. I can just simply say he spoke it into being. Reality obeys the word of God. And Hebrews 1.3 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. See, one day when he calls that word back, the universe is going to collapse. Second Peter says the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. The, the elements, Second Peter chapter 3, the elements of the earth, gold, silver, iron, all the elements will melt away and be dissolved. The heavens will disappear with a hiss. But we won't be afraid. Because God is with us. Remember, be still and know that I am God. Relax. God's in charge. He can take us past this. I'm not sure I was able to answer your question, but at least I pointed to a couple things. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think fear of the Lord is a beginning of wisdom and knowledge. People who are afraid of God. You know, you know when I first became a Christian, it was, it was fire insurance. I mean, I didn't want to go to hell. That's why I became a Christian. Uh, and I think I was, I was terrified. I remember when I was a kid, my mom used to say, because you did that, just wait till your dad gets home. And I was terrified. And I was scared all day long. When he finally showed up, I was even more scared. And I had reason to be. And uh, he didn't do it enough, probably. Probably should have been beaten more than I was. But, yeah, I think it's possible to fear God and really not know him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know how it is. If you're afraid of God, and by the way, fear of the Lord can mean everything from awe and wonder to dread and terror. The word fear is a wide open word in Greek. There are other words. I mean, they have words like dread and terror and so on. But fear can cover all that spectrum. Scripture says in two different places, Psalms and Proverbs, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. That word beginning same word used back in Genesis 1.1. It can mean the chief part, the most important part of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The most important part of knowledge is fear of the Lord. I was thinking more along the lines of, you know, the way I see fearing the Lord is loving the things that he loves and hating the things that he hates. But if I didn't have a relationship with him, then I probably really didn't. 
Yeah, you probably wouldn't know the things he hates and loves if, if you didn't have a relationship with him. Yeah, you know. Yes, it is. Fear of the Lord is to turn away from evil, Scripture says. Well, folks, I've had fun, but this wasn't it. So let's pray, okay? I'll let you go. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for teaching us, for always leading us, for always being behind us and in front of us, for your, your hand covering our lives. We, we praise you for who you are, and I pray that each person here will come into a deeper relationship with you because we have studied your word. In Jesus' name, amen.